Interior Motives is a podcast that amplifies the unique voices and interior lives of Black and brown people from various industries, backgrounds, and walks of life. Visionaries who have overcome adversities and are doing extraordinary things in the world and in their communities, yet like you and me, reflect the complexities of the human condition. Hello, beautiful people. This is Shaylin Foster, and welcome to another episode of Interior Motives. Today's conversation is with Beverly Setlisek as she shares her powerful journey of emotional healing. So take a moment, relax, grab a cup of coffee or some tea, and let's talk. Beverly Setlisek received her doctorate in nursing practice from Andrews University. Her area of expertise is psychiatric nursing. She maintains a thriving private practice providing treatment for people in the areas of trauma, addiction, abuse, relationship difficulties, emotional problems, and financial literacy. Beverly serves as the clinical director of Into His Rest Ministries, a Christian counseling ministry where she conducts intensive weekend retreats with groups of women across the country. Beverly is a frequent presenter at churches, workshops, conferences, and camp meetings all over the world. She and her husband, David, have written a book and workbook entitled Cleansing the Sanctuary of the Heart, Tools for Emotional Healing. When Beverly speaks, she is transparent about her own journey of healing and invites the courageous to join her in God's work of restoration and cleansing the sanctuary of our hearts. So without further ado, please welcome the phenomenal Beverly Setlisek. Hi, Beverly. How are you doing? I'm fine, Shailen. It is so good to have you here on Interior Motives podcast today. I uh, was extremely excited because I was able to reference your book in a previous podcast where the guest was Jamela Shroud, and she talked so uh, fondly about this book that you and your husband authored and how much this book resonated for her and was really one of the pivotal pieces in her internal and external journey. And so I was like, wow, I need to check out the book and see what it's all about. And I have to say, I was so just intrigued, but I was also enlightened when I started reading it. It really is a beautiful piece that integrates, you know, the mental health, the child adverse experiences with neuroscience, as well as the spiritual and biblical teachings, which is, which is really extraordinary and, and not something that is out there as, as, or it's not common, I should say. And so I was really excited to have you. So why don't you tell us more about your personal and professional experience and your background and as well as your journey? Okay. I am a, a nurse. I, I also have a uh, graduated from college and I have a master's in psychiatric nursing, which is my 
specialty, and then I have a doctorate in nursing practice. And uh, when I started my journey of college, I did not know I would land in psych uh, nursing. I absolutely love those who are uh, mentally uh, challenged. I love uh, understanding how people get where they are, as well as uh, wanting to understand how I can help them to move to a different place. And so it's been a wonderful experience for me in terms of helping people uh, along the way. Wow. Wow. So, so tell me more about your practice. Such an incredible resume in terms of your background. Tell me more about your practice and the population that you serve. Okay. I, um, I started off in a variety of settings. I've taught, I've been in, in clinical settings, and my passion has been in counseling. And I have a private practice. I serve, I would say, 70% women and 30% men. I would say there are, I, I probably serve equally that kind of number, that kind of percentage with uh, people of color as well as white people and other ethnic persuasions. I, I, people typically come in because they are experiencing distress in relationships, but uh, the underlying issue tends tend to be trauma, but they may present with codependency, they may present with anxiety, depression, but for sure as we get to digging, oftentimes frequently trauma emerges and people want to, they have distress, and surprisingly, they have a lot of distress regarding um, their issue, their, their relationship with God. And as we dig around, they often have a lot of feelings, a lot of, and we're talking, I, I serve primarily Christians, so, but people have, don't know to, or they uh, haven't known that they are really experiencing this distress around how they really feel about God until we actually call it what it is. <laughs> and so uh, once we get there, we really uh, can get some, uh, really um, get people to moving and looking at their issues. So, and so it's been just a wonderful journey. I've been doing this off and on for about 25 years. And it has just been, again, my passion for sure. I, I, I tell people all the time, I know I was created to, to do what I'm doing. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful thing when you know, when you know, yeah. this is what I am called to do. Yes. Now, now you mentioned how folks sometimes will come in and they're presenting with one issue. It could be codependency and really the root cause could be trauma. How do you go about helping folks unpack that? Because, you know, we know it's a layered process. And sometimes when you come in and you may stay on the surface because you're maybe not ready to go there. Okay. So, so how do you help folks uh, unpack and get comfortable enough to really explore the inner workings of something like traumatic a traumatic event? Good question. People, again, particularly 
generally come in, hey, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, and they begin telling their story. And I always ask questions to draw out more detail and really try to evaluate how much do they understand uh, what's really going on with them, how much insight do they have about connecting the dots. There are times when people don't make good connections about their experience. But I will ask questions. You know, they, they usually start in the here now, having difficulty in my marriage or schoolwork or coworkers. And then I ask a question about, tell me about growing up. And I ask it that open-ended. And people typically get a little nervous about that. Well, can you give me some direction? I want to hear what you think is important to share with me about your years growing up. And uh, they will uh, typically say, I had a great childhood. Mom and dad were married or mom and dad were divorced or whatever. But even (laughs) with divorced parents, they still will tell me they had a great childhood. And I tend to hold that thought close to my chest because when I hear people say I have a great childhood, I tend to think I'm not sure how accurately or how clearly they may see the impact of their childhood experiences or the impact of their parents upon them. And so I just, in my first session or two, I'm just collecting information. And then at the end of the, the session, I rehearse what I've heard. I, I repeat, you know, the salient points that they brought up. And then I always give people permission to, to say, hey, I like you or I don't like you. They don't have to say that to me personally, but I always give them permission. Um, this is important work. Going to a counselor is really vulnerable work and you need to be comfortable with your counselor. And I want you to think about, you know, if you find this to be a good fit, then by all means, let's make another appointment. If not, you need time to think about it. Uh, My feelings are not hurt at all. You get to decide for yourself uh, what works for you. And then I ask three questions. And these questions tend to be a really anchoring point for our work. And my first question is, do you really want to learn how to live? You've come in and you've rehearsed this, this, you know, this history. Do you really want to learn how to live? And the second question is, and I, I, I say to them, I don't want you to, to answer until you hear all three questions. And you can answer if you think you can come, you want to come back, you can answer when you come back. And that first question is, do you want to learn how to live? The second question is, are you willing to go to any lengths to learn how to live? And the third one is, are you willing to take suggestions? And um, people think about those and they may say, yes, I want to learn how to live because right now what I'm doing is not working. Or they may say yes to the second question. And uh, I also give them an example. And the example I typically give, I I go between two examples. One is, oh, yes, I want to be financially fit. I want to get out of debt. And I'll go to any lengths to get out of debt. But, oh, the January sales are just so great. Can I start in February? Well, 
you, uh, you said yes to the first question, yes to the second question, but the third question would be to begin this process. The suggestion would be to begin this process immediately. And are you willing to take suggestions because you don't know how to do this? Mm. And they will say, oh, okay, well, and then sometimes people will actually say, well, I don't know if I want to, yeah, and it, be, it really is an issue of control. I don't know if I want to relinquish control to take suggestions to say yes. And the other example I, I give is, oh, yes, I want to lose 25 pounds. I'm willing to go to any lengths to learn how to use to lose 25 pounds. Oh, you mean I can't eat after six? You're going to suggest that. Oh, well, um, I always eat at, at seven or eight, and I always have a snack before I go to bed. Oh, well, you just have identified that you, you, you don't know how to do this well, and you need to uh, take suggestions. Are you willing to do that? And so when they get in a hard place in therapy, I always refer them back to those three questions. Mm -hmm. Remember when we first started working together, what you said was yes to those three questions. And it is hard, it is difficult, but are you still there? And so those become a really wonderful place to anchor people. And, uh, and as we move forward, forward, when times get hard, they can say, oh, yeah, I did say that. Okay, okay, okay. So, um, and so getting people there and, you know, to that place. And then one, one um, rule of thumb, and I think, I think a good therapist knows that uh, we see a lot when people walk in the door. Right. But because we see it, we don't have to tell them that we see it. Right, right. And the absolute best thing is to help them to see it and to own it for themselves. Right. And so part of what I do is work really hard to help them to begin to connect dots and call it what it is. Right. I can recall a woman who told me, you know, I had a great childhood, parents separated, and we were talking about her relationship with her mother and she was a teenager and her mother she had friends come over to the house to pick her up and her mother was upset with her and her mother grabbed her by the hair and slapped her in front of her friends mm -hmm. and and when i pointed out oh that that seemed to be abusive she looked at me just with these big dull eyes she had never even consider that to be abusive or even inappropriate right that because that's what her mother did right and that was her norm yeah that that was her norm i like what you you, you i like the the three questions as an used as an anchor but also as a way of holding clients accountable mm -hmm. because when you ask the question do you want to live what is the implication coming from your perspective when you ask clients, potential clients of that? Well, you're here because your, your life from your perspective as you shared your story, and I will give data to support that. You, you know, you, 
things are not going well in your marriage, your children, whatever the, um, the triggering points are for getting people in the door. And you will acknowledge that this is not really living, walking on eggshells with your boss or walking on eggshells with your children or your spouse. And people can acknowledge that. Well, do you want to learn how to live? And implied in that question is there is another way of, of doing life other than how you're doing it. And uh, it's taking a lot of energy, and that energy is tending toward death rather than life. And do you really want to learn how to live and live to the fullest? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm implying. And, and sometimes I have to spell that out very clearly, depending upon the issues as people have shared that with me you know, in that first session. And sometimes it's a matter of their lives are in such disarray that they certainly can acknowledge that they want to do something different. Wow. Wow. So powerful. You know, even just the question itself is a powerful and certainly a reflective question. So in terms of just your own personal journey, oftentimes people that end up doing the work that we do in the mental health realm, there tends to be a defining moment or a series of moments where we truly believe that, that God is calling us to do this type of work. So what was it like for you? How did you know that this was the work for you and this is what you were called to do? Were there personal experiences along the way that you, you had to overcome for yourself in order to get to where you are now? Yes. I, I grew up in a family. My, my mother comes from a family of nine. Uh, there are nine siblings. There were nine siblings. And uh, all of them were alcoholics. Uh, my dad was a gambler and a professional gambler. And so I knew addictions very well. And there was just a lot of uh, chaos and unrest in my home. My, my father was physically abusive uh, to my mom for a number of years until she decided no more. And- Is that something and, you witnessed yourself? Correct, okay. correct. And, and uh, when I was three, I was molested by one of her brothers. Mm. And uh, that didn't bubble up until I was in my 20s. Wow. And I just promptly tucked that away. And uh, when I was 13, we moved a lot. And when I was 13, we moved uh, to a neighborhood. And uh, I was like fresh meat. And so this young teenager took an interest in me and uh, told me I was the best thing since sliced bread and told me that there's a chance in a million I could get pregnant the first time I had sex. And he just was very attentive to me. And so I thought, why not? And so I did indeed get pregnant. And so I was a young tender 13 and a half. Wow. And and back then, they kicked you out of school. And so everything about that experience was pretty traumatic for me. I have a friend, and we're still friends today, who I had an older sister. 
and she told me, uh, this is before my mom knew, I, I, I went to my friend's house after I had sex and I said, I'm pregnant. And she said, you can't be pregnant. You just did it. And I said, no, I'm pregnant. And so two weeks later, as my body began to change, we had sex three consecutive days. And, and as my body began to change two weeks later, you know, we pulled out medical books, comparing notes. And, and uh, I was in summer school and uh, I, my mom was a big cook and loved to make sure we had breakfast, but I stopped eating breakfast. So I wouldn't get sick at, you know, going to school right. and uh, uh, I'd run out the door and say, I can't eat, I'll eat at school. And I'd eat at school, throw up. So when I got home, I wouldn't have to do that. Mm. But Donella's sister told me that if you drank bleach and liquor together oh, in a wow. cocktail, you could have an abortion. Wow. And so uh, my mother was a beer drinker, but she always had alcohol around the house for people who came by who liked uh, liquor. And so I began squirreling away some liquor. And when I had what I thought was enough, uh, I, I made this con concoction and, uh, and drank it down. But it didn't get very far because of the toxic nature of the bleach, of course and uh, came running downstairs. It actually took my breath away and ran outside, hauling air, really trying to catch my breath. My, my mother came out and asked me what was wrong. And I told her I was cleaning up the bathroom and inadvertently drank bleach. And so we went to the emergency room and that's when you know, they ran a battery of tests and that's when it was determined that I was pregnant. And it was, uh, a really scary time for me. So that was in July, August, and I was unable to go back to school. Oh, I went back for a couple of weeks and someone told my, my belly was beginning to grow and someone went and told the principal. And I uh, had to leave school and that was very traumatic for me because school was important to me. Right. And so uh, when I had this child, went to the emergency, I went to the hospital, uh, my grandfather died, and the funeral was the next day. The, I went into labor, labor the night before. And so my mother dropped me off at the hospital thinking she wanted to be able to attend the funeral. And so I, I did labor by myself for 20 hours, except there was a nurse that stayed with me. Okay. Uh, she came in on day shift, and she stayed with me in, until I had Eric in the evening. And I am a nurse today because of her. I don't remember what she looked like. Back then, they wore scrubs, green scrubs. She had on green scrubs. And I think she had dark hair. And, and she had clean, pretty, pearly white shoes. And uh, I became a nurse who was obsessed with clean white shoes. <laughs> and, and so uh, so I had Eric, came home and went right back to school. My mother was very, very, that was a real strong value she had about girl her girls getting educated. And so I went back to school and she kept Eric for me. And uh, I wanted to go to college down south and uh, she told me that was too far away from home. Eric called me mommy. And so she thought that would be 
to, you know, he would forget me. So I went off to college. He was 18. I'm sorry, I was 18 and he was four. And so my mom was very supportive. And um, so I went off to college to a small Lutheran school and uh, they were throwing money at, at black students back then. And I went to school with white people who had never gone to school with black people. Oh, wow. What, what? Never seen a black person except on TV. Uh, what, what year was that? Just to give. Uh, 1969. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a time. Yes. What a time. Right in the midst of, you know, civil rights and segregation. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the Vietnam War, that whole uh, unrest yes, and all of that. So, um, so I, you know, I finished uh, college pretty strong. And uh, uh, incidentally, while I was home, uh, I didn't go out. I only went to the doctor. I went to the doctor by myself. I went with my younger brother. He's 10 years younger than me. And he was such a cutie pie. And I thought if I took him to the doctor, people would notice him and not my belly. And, um, and I, I, uh, someone sent me uh, Bible studies. And so uh, I would get them in the mail one day and send them off the next day. And, uh, and when I had Eric, I was after the, back in the day, you know, you had to stay home for six weeks after you had a baby, right. that old wife's tale. And so after, after, is, is at the end of that, oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and so at the end of that six weeks, I, I, I took Eric and carted, I would carted Eric off to church with me. So I, I began going to church uh, in earnest at that point. And so that's, that's, and so again, when I hit the rotation of psych nursing, ah, I could understand some of my thinking and some of my brokenness by uh, the things I was learning in class. And, and I was just so fascinated by uh, this discipline. And I had a great psych teacher. Her name was Jane Lutz. And I knew I wanted to continue doing that. And so that's... You, you said her name was... What was her name again? Jane Lutz. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, so she was pretty, would you say she was one of your, your inspirations in terms of the work that you're doing? Yes. Yes. But, but probably my, my favorite inspiration was a teacher. So um, I didn't do any counseling after I had Eric. Um, I just put my head down and went back to school and uh, and so and when I hit point, at that point, you were in what grade? I was in the eighth grade. Okay. I was in the eighth grade. Okay. And went you know went through college. I mean, went through high school. Every place I went, I had to take Eric. And I, again, there was no trying to understand what happened and my own pain and my own shame about that experience. And when I hit the rotation uh, OBGYN, and I had to follow a teenage mother. And, but what was interesting, the mother, the teenage mother went into labor. And in the room next door to me, there was uh, a woman in labor with twins. And so I abandoned my post and went over to see this exciting activity of 
this this mother having twins. Mm. And so that teacher's name was Joan he- Hall, Joanne Hall. And she called me aside and said, oh, you know, that was inappropriate. I, uh, she asked me to, I had to stay out of clinical for two weeks and go to counseling every day. And instead of her failing me, which she could have well well within her rights, instead of doing that, she uh, made up my clinical hours during Christmas break. And so it was because of her loving concern for me. I'll never forget that woman. She just really cared enough for me to uh, support me because it was just you know, here I am. I, this is how, this is what happened to me. I was really just, uh, I had regressed for sure and was caught up in my own drama of having a baby and not attending to anything, anybody except myself at that point. Right. And so, so that I really, and so when I, when I taught nursing, I was very attentive to students and on the lookout for anybody who may have been triggered like she was for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a beautiful legacy that she imparted to you. Yes. And it's so easy when you're in the thick of it, because how, how could you not be thinking about you and just survival and raising a baby at such a young age? And the fact that you, you were able to to find a, a path, a direction that made sense for you is extraordinary because there's a lot of people that would have made other choices. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you have this, this uh, long historical, or I should say family trauma with alcohol, alcoholism, addictions, codependency. How, how would you say that that played out for you? Oh, excellent question. For me, uh, I, I became hypervigilant. I am definitely a fighter. My uh, mother was pretty passive. And I remember I was about nine or 10. And I said to her, Mom, we, we don't have to live like this. Let's just go. Let's just, we can go someplace. We, I was ready to leave. And and I was going to, you know, stab my daddy with a pair of scissors because we don't have to live this way. And so I am definitely a fighter. And uh, I think that fight has served me well. <laughs> uh, I tend to show up in a fighting mode on behalf of my clients. I will fight for them. Oh, my. I will fight with them on their behalf. But uh, <laughs> um, there are times when that and it hasn't served me well at times as well. But so I am definitely a fighter. Uh, I had to survive. I'm, I'm definitely hypervigilant. Um, and, just, and, I, I, and you talk about the hypervigilance because more so because of the the trauma of witnessing your your dad and his abuse towards your mom. Was he correct? A, was he abusive towards you or your siblings? Uh, n- no, it's Directly. interesting. He, it, it's interesting. My dad used to tell this story that when my mom would, when I was an infant, my mom would go to the store or whatever, and I would cry from the time she walked out the door until she came back. And 
And he said, one time he, he called me Bevy. And he said, one time, Bevy, you came so, so close to being thrown up against the wall because you wouldn't stop crying. And I was thinking, boy, did I pick up your murderous spirit? <laughs> Absolutely. And so how could I, you know, find you uh, comforting? And my dad's mom abandoned him. She migrated from the South up here and left him with his grandmother. He loved his mother as well as his grandmother, but he definitely perceived that as abandonment. And I looked a lot like her. And so, try as I might, I couldn't win him over. And, and I guess how I tell the story is because I look so much like his mom. Oh, wow. And so uh, I, I couldn't win. Uh, couldn't win his attention. Um, you, you said that you couldn't, or he perceived it as abandonment from his mom. Correct. How did you, how did you know that? Did he ever say that? Or is it just from your, your professional um, discernment? Good question. He, my mom would, and, and he would talk often about being left down South with his mother. I mean, with his grandmother. And he was like, 12, 13, and, and she died while he, was, while he was here. His mom migrated up north to Cleveland, got married, had a couple of other sons, and she never came and got him, right? She never said, hey, come back up here, with, come with me. And, and I think after grandma died, he did migrate up north, but he had a an interesting relationship with his mother, according to my mother, you know, one that was conflictual. So, you know, I kind of put two and two together uh, mm-hmm. from that perspective. Right. That right. He, he wanted to come up north, but she didn't call for him to come. Right, right. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So how would you say that just some of the the trauma impacted you in terms of making connections, whether it was with peers or in relationships, future relationships? I think uh, I was so busy surviving and lost in my shame, especially Mm -hmm. in high school. Mm -hmm. I was busy just, you know, I, I loved school and I was busy trying to find my way. I, if I wanted to go to an activity, I had to go home and get Eric and go, and you know, go back with him. And of course, that was a rarity. You know, that just didn't happen. So I was really lost in just trying to find my way. Mm-hmm. And I think shame has been a, a persistent struggle that sneaks up on me. And just this past weekend, I, I got lost in some shame and I uh, had to <laughs> climb my way out of it. So uh, that's, that's a, and, and you know, the message of shame is that you don't measure up and you just don't fit. And then even the feeling of shame, not thinking that I have what it takes to even handle the feeling of shame is a real heavy duty emotion. Shame is a very, very negative emotion, as you know, in working with people. And so and that, that has definitely, abandonment and shame, I think, are two very core issues for me. 
And, uh, and so I, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time and I, I'm, I'm real big on saying that I am on the journey with my clients. I am blessed as they, you know, share their uh, most intimate details with me. I'm blessed and it, you know, helps me to make sense of my story and recovery or healing is not a destination. It's a journey. It is. And, uh, and so I'm not, I have not arrived. I keep growing and growing and growing. And people are always surprised, like, you mean you're not there? Nope. It's not a destination. It's a journey. <laughs> I know. I've certainly gotten that as well. I, I think the assumption is that if you are in the healthcare industry or helping professional or you're a therapist uh, or a psychologist or what have you that serves people, and the inner workings of their trauma and their issues, the assumption is that you have it all together. And I'm I'm glad you said that and said that so eloquently, you know, because it it certainly is a journey. Yeah. And and to just to kind of emphasize that, I was talking with a client the other day and uh, she had switched from one, um, she's ADD, and she had switched from one uh, stimulant to another, and she, uh, she's now an Adderall, and she loves it, and she was so focused, and she got so much done, and her husband's happier, and she's happier, and I have a, a little ADD, and, and I'm thinking, oh my word, I, I have no idea what that feels like to be so focused because I can be all over the map sometimes. And, and so Friday, I was thinking I, I, I had to do a talk Friday evening and I did not know what I was going to say. And I'm, I thank the Lord. I have friends who tell me, you know, that's a gift to be able to get up and start talking. And I can do that. You just give me a theme and, and the ideas will come. And so that's exactly what happened on Friday. But I was feeling some kind of way about that. Like, who gets up and not have notes and just get up and start talking? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking. So why, were you, why were you feeling some kind of way about that? Because I I would have wanted to, you know, I was... I wanted to know a little bit. I wanted to have some idea. I had, you know, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. I could have talked about, but I didn't know. And I kept going back and forth, like, Lord, are you going to tell me? And and then I ended up on the one subject and I'm sitting in the front of the church and and they introduced me and the setup was I was the first African-American woman to speak at this, this uh, event. And so I get up and so now, no, now you give no, me more context. I understand. Yeah, no notes. And I just open my mouth and I just start talking. And, and then I sit down and I thought, who does that? Who does that? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you have notes? And so <laughs> I proceeded to beat myself up. Um, you know, you really should have, um, maybe not cooked, maybe you should have focused on getting notes together and all of that. And, you know, the feedback was just great, but I just, I was gone by that point. You know, so I, I'm, I'm really, I, I have no problem being, problems being vulnerable. 
uh, as appropriate with the client who may have me on a pedestal. No, I'm on a journey with you. And, you know, I've done some really, you know, crazy things. And, you know, I've been here and I've been there. And I probably will share that story at some point, you know, because it was just, I mean, God just blesses. That's, it's a gift. I can just get up and talk. Right, right. But I wasn't reading it as a gift that day. It was like, who does that? Nobody does that. Mm-hmm. People, you know, the the other uh, the other men who spoke, they had notes, and it's like, who does that? Why would you do that? So it, it's just, it's just. I, I had to remind myself yesterday as I was digging out. You know, this is a journey, not a destination. Look at the fruit. God tremendously blessed. He blesses all the time. You know, there are times when I do have prepared notes and I have I have forgotten them, you know, I, or they don't download to my iPad. Right. Uh, something happens. Right. You know, I've prepared, you know, by praying and, you know, there's been some internal preparation and he just can bless and I need to be okay with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some moments are just that divine moment where yes, whatever comes out, you know, you trust that it was meant to come out and it was meant specifically for somebody, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So such an incredible journey. So at what point do you connect with your, your partner? Your, your, your husband, you know, you have this incredible platform and ministry in mental health, as well as you came together to write this book. So what was that, that journey? Yes. So I did not think I would get married. I thought I would just, so I'm 28, Eric's 14 and I'm uh, 32, Eric's 18. And I'm thinking, well, I would just follow him around get a get a PhD and I'll just follow him around and be the doting grandmother. And uh and so I met my husband while I was in graduate school and we got married and a couple years uh after we were married, my husband just really sensed that God was calling him. He also is a counselor in LCSW with a PhD and he was sensing that God was calling him from uh, doing things the way he's always done them. He uh, was a uh, an addictions counselor, mm-hmm. and and uh, one treatment modality was to uh, have uh, the person give instead of carrying shame themselves, have them do it. You know, uh, give their parents talk to an empty chair and pretend their parents are in that chair and give their parents back their shame. And mm-hmm. somehow that didn't sit well with him. He, he was a relatively new Christian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he was sensing that God was calling him from what he was doing. So he sold his practice and about six months just really was seeking the Lord what he wanted to do. I was working at the time I was counseling. And so we decided to open a little lifestyle center to do health, you know, physical health things. And then someone gave us a book and the book sat on the shelf for a couple of years. And David pulled the book off the shelf and started reading. And 
And one night I, I saw him crying and it's like, what are you crying about? And he said, this book is really moving me mm-hmm. and you've got to read it. And I started reading the book as well. And it was doing the same thing for me. It was really moving me. And, you know, it was talking about principles that we certainly uh, mentioned in the book that we wrote. But uh, we, we felt like we had a unique perspective in that um, the things that when we think about emotional healing, to really walk people through the sanctuary. The sanctuary is just such an important beautiful illustration of what God wanted to do with, uh, with us as humans. And so we saw beauty in walking people through a healing process through the sanctuary. And so I remember a friend invited us to come and, and the very first time we presented that and weaving some of the ideas we got from this book and walked it through. What is the book? The name of the book, uh, I knew you were going to ask me that. I can tell you the name of the authors, John and Paula, The Transformation of the Inner Man. Okay. That was the name of it by John and Paula Sanford. And it was just, you know, not uh, focusing on behavior, but helping people to understand from a biblical point of view, the motives that prompt our behaviors, the motives that drive us. And I had never seen it presented that way in terms of a spiritual framework. And then with the sanctuary, it just became richer. And so the very first time we shared it, it was like, wow, this is so powerful. And then we started just sharing it every chance we got. And every time we shared it, it had that kind of reaction. And so instead of people coming in and looking at their, just their physical health, we started sharing that piece through the sanctuary. And then we developed a reputation for emotional healing. And so the ministry just took off. And it was, it was just a, we had no idea. <laughs> it was just, okay. And, and then my husband, again, got this. I have a sense that God is calling us to a larger platform. And uh, someone called us. He had, my husband's quite a writer, gifted writer, and he had written an article about emotional healing. And uh, this guy called us and asked us to come and do some TV programs on 3ABN. And we went and somebody saw us on 3ABN. And asked us to come and do um, a, a drug treatment center in Montana using these principles. Oh, wow. And uh, we went out there and we got there and the tables turned a little bit. People were not quite as open mm-hmm. and ready for what we were offering. And that lasted about six weeks and like, okay, God, where are we going? And then, um, with, with me. Um, but before we... Pardon me? I was thinking, what made you uh, believe that they weren't as open? Like, what was the feedback that you were getting? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so so the, the gentleman that asked us to come, he had a person who was the business manager. The business manager believed that people should pray more and try harder for emotional healing. Okay. And so, well, no, that's not how... God taught us, and that's not why this God brought us here to teach people Bible promises. Uh, yes, the Bible isn't a part of it, but that's not it. 
And then she began talking to the clients who had come because we were there and it was just not a good fit and we knew we couldn't stay. And so it's like, okay, so where are we going from here? So, but before we left Ohio, we had written this book. David did the, you know, the yeoman's writing. I did a lot of editing and added uh, uh, some parts that uh, I typically do and, and, you know, added that part. And, but it sat in a computer for, oh, probably four or five years. And then when we got to California and we were at uh, a lifestyle center called Weimar, and and we got there to do uh, emotional healing component to their program. And, you know, somebody said, well, where's the book? And, well, we have a book on our computer. <laughs> and so we got it published and it was at the urging there. And we are just always surprised when we hear how far and wide it's gone and people use it in churches now for um, study study groups. And we are just amazed. So we just did a third edition. I think it was 2000, end of 2018. Yeah, it's, and, it's, really, uh, it's really an amazing book. It really is. I, I oh. you know, and I, and I read a lot and I read a lot, you know, for fun, uh, you know, but I read a lot professionally uh, books. I'm always looking for books that are going to be helpful to me as well as helpful to people I come in contact as well as my clients. And so this um, really, really uh, does a deep dive into the realm of, you know, codependency and addiction and it, and how it intersects with the other pieces in terms of uh, the spirituality. And so how, I guess if you could just make it or break it down into principles that make sense, because it really is more in depth. And it's one of those books that you have to go back and read again and take notes. And because there's so many great concepts as well as, gems to really marinate on before you have that kind of moment. Okay. Aha. That makes great sense to me and how it applies to my life. So how would you, if you could kind of encapsulate or break it down in in simpler terms for folks to understand this book, what would you say? I would say that there are motives that drive our behaviors that we don't understand. We just kind of go through the motions. The, I, I was so excited when, uh, I, when neuroscience came on the scene and it affirmed again how we are shaped as children and how that those neural pathways are laid down early and it was a confirmation of the motives that prompt us and we don't even understand how our first experience of community is with our parents and how they shape us to enter into any other community we enter into and how we are wounded in community and how that wounding shapes us because when I am hurt, I don't want to sit in pain. I mentioned, for example, one of my 
core issues is abandoned. I don't, abandonment. I don't want to sit in the feeling of being abandoned all day. Right. So I learned to do things very early in my life to uh, survive life. Right. And there are things that I do that as I grow up, they then get in the way of my ability to thrive in life. And I mentioned, for example, that I'm a fighter. And there's a good side to the fight. And then there's a not so good side to the fight. And so my fighting, my, okay, I'm, you're not gonna, I'm gonna, you're gonna abandon me. So I'm going to do things to make sure I'm not abandoned. So I'm going to go and, um, you know, especially early in my life, I would go, you know, and attach myself to people who would ultimately abandon me and it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I just thought I had incredible bad luck. Right. And then as I began to understand, first of all, embracing my own story that, yes, these things happened to me and grieve what happened to me and then to see how I had to survive in life and really take that deep dive to understand what are the survival tools that I'm using because those survival tools are not the tools that are going to help me to thrive in life. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so so often as human beings, you know, the tools can be, you know, those maladaptive tools, those negative uh, ways of coping that become habitual. Yes. That we use numb pain or uh, whatnot, which tends to translate into addictions and self-destructive behavior. And, and it's, and it's spelled out in such a way in this book, but what's so interesting was some of the analogies that you used as it relates to biblical teachings, because so often in Christian spaces, there tends to be the mindset of, or there tends to be the instruction of prayer and uh, giving it to God and trusting God that he'll work, he'll work uh, the pain out or he'll work it out for our good. But um, you mentioned in the book, the concept of even just trust. You talk about trust and how often you're dealing with the, the lack of trust in, in God. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. So, so just, uh, it, you know, in the spirit of vulnerability. So, you know, I come home Friday night and, you know, I'm in this, I'm on this spiral down, down the toilet you know, where, where shame takes you, you know, uh, how could you do that? what self-respecting person would do that and on and on and on. And I love Psalm 139 in the Passion Translation. And that is a, a, a little known translation, but if you have a Bible you know, on your phone, which most of us do, there is, uh, it's called the TPT. And this Psalm 139 I was reading that every day for a while, and, and it just really, really blessed me. 
And one of the, the principles about, uh, I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful song. And so as I was, you know, struggling uh, yesterday morning, and, and it starts off with, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You perceive every movement of my heart and soul. And you understand my every thought before it even enters my mind. Now, that's what this, this translation says. And so I was like, no, you couldn't possibly know my, you could not. You know, there's just too many thoughts that go through. And boy, it, what a small view of God, this infinite God. And it goes on to talk about how he knows us. He's so intimately aware of us. And this is the text that just really, really blessed me. You've gone into my future to prepare the way. And in kindness, you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. With your hand of love upon my life, you impart a blessing to me. This is just too wonderful and deep and incomprehensible. Your understanding of me brings me wonder and strength. And so now he said, I, before you even think of thought, I got you. Mm. And then he says... I got you. I, I know you. Even, you know, I know you, I'm, I'm already in your future. I already fixed it up. And the harm of your past, whatever you've done in the past, and you may not have been good, but I even, I'm even blocking that. And that requires uh, uh, me looking at God. Oh, you are indeed trustworthy. You are indeed all that you said you are. You are indeed that. And being able to see him not just as this, you know, I'm going to pray and do the pray more and try harder, but I'm going to trust that what I said Friday night is what the people heard because you've already gone into my future. You already have fixed this up. And I have, I'm, I, your call to me is as you bring this to my awareness, is that you got me. And I can even believe your word or I can believe the shame, the lies that shame would tell me about myself. And I'm gonna choose to believe you. And so remember, we're hurt in relationship and we, we have experiences where we've been hurt and our belief is that God calls us to experiences for healing. Right. And so what he was doing was reminding me, this is my experience of you. I delight in you. This was a great psalm. Anyway, the, mm -hmm. the entire psalm is just, it just spoke volumes. And that's how I was reading that yesterday. And you know, talking to my community about where I am. I can't, I can't, uh, I need another brain to come alongside my brain to help me to challenge the narrative in my story, you know, in my head. Right. And so I need other people to, no, that's not how it works. And I've seen you get up ill-prepared all the time. I would never get up the way you do. But I've seen God just show up and show out the way he blesses you. I can't do that, but you sure can. And so uh, I, I'm not thinking it was as bad as you thought it was. 
Right, <laughs> so right. having someone else come alongside me and remind me that, no, this is who God made me to be. Right, right, and, right, right. So having that validation and uh, being affirmed from, you know, yeah. you said your community or the people that you that you trust to have your back is, is powerful, you know, and even what you talked about in the book, I mean, I think it was, it was a simple concept, but even just the act or the practice of being vulnerable, sharing vulnerabilities, as well as sharing your story, whatever that story is and how that practice and, and being affirmed, whether it's through relationships or through therapy or, or in a safe space and how just that can change the, the neurobiology of your brain. I mean, that was, that was heavy. You know, that, that's a heavy uh, thing to really think about that I think that we, think we take for granted because I think oftentimes people assume that if you have dealt with traumatic events in your life, that have created a lifestyle of negative patterns that healing is not, not necessarily attainable, you know what I mean? Or that yeah. creating new patterns is, is not attainable, but it is. It is, it, it is, it is. And I think, you know, one, some great books that have influenced me even today, great Christian uh, psychiatrist, Dr. Kurt with a C, Kurt Thompson, uh, he wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Soul mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. and the Soul of of Shame. Oh, my word. Is that a great book? Uh, I would definitely, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Yes, they're just, just powerful books. And even my telling my story changes how I recall my story, how I remember my story. And so it is imperative to tell my story. And in my telling my story, I even influence you and help you to change the narrative in your head. So there's so many positive benefits to telling your story. And uh, another gem that when I tell people this, they, you know, again, get these big dull eyes, that keeping the secret is worse than what actually happened to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So powerful. You know, the keeping the secret, holding it in and not sharing it is, it has far worse effect upon you than the actual event itself. Yeah. 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 We, you know, the saying we're as sick as our secrets is. Yes. Is yes. 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 But you know, in, in our community, particularly uh, the culture of, I guess, religious communities, as well as communities of culture, you know, historically, that is what we were taught to do is to, Correct. to uh, keep things in the dark, you know, because because of our own historical context and, and historical trauma, you know, and oppression. Right. It wasn't that, that permission or that space to really show up authentically and to be truthful and to call a spade a spade because of the shame, you know, because of the shame, because of being found out, because of being seen or perceived as being flawed, you know, as an individual, as a family, as a community. 
And so what do you say to that? What do you say to folks that to, to show up and to speak truth is something that is, is somewhat foreign to them? What do you say to them to make folks feel more comfortable in that discomfort? I, I think uh, a couple of things. I, I, first of all, that in our discomfort, the Bible says that we have a God of all comfort who wants to comfort our hearts in all of our tribulations. So even in my discomfort of having to do something I'm not comfortable with, I can get the comfort from God. But I think the truth is that God is bigger than our culture. God is greater than our culture. He understands the trauma, particularly people of color have experienced, and he, he loves the oppressed. He loves, uh, he has a special place in his heart for those of us who have been oppressed. And so uh, I think, and see, this is again, this trust of God in God that goes kind of hand in hand with this. So you're not accustomed to talking to people and, you know, breaking the don't talk rule. So ask God to show you who you can talk to who would be safe. And so that serves two purposes. One, that you get to see that God is faithful and leading you to just the right person. And you also get to see that that person can be trusted. And it's not you choosing the person, you know, God understands that you may have trouble seeing who that is. And so ask him to make it abundantly clear that this is a person that you can talk to. And you start with small things. You start talking about the weather and then you start talking about you blue dinner then you start talking about you did make a good choice in spending, um, you know, you bought something that wasn't on sale. And, you know, you start with these small steps mm-hmm. and then, you know, you can begin to talk and uh, to share the more intimate details. And people, um, uh, as you are open, people, you are role modeling for that person and they too can be vulnerable. And so you have this wonderful give and take in relationship where they uh, can feel safe in sharing with you as you share with them. Yeah, yeah. I think that is uh, definitely so true. I think so many relationships now, uh, whether it's pure or romantic, there's, there's there's almost this this race to the finish, you know, to where it's not as common to just kind of t- let things happen slowly. Yes, as you talk, you know, it's almost like you're you're creating these building blocks of getting to know someone little by little, and, and also, you know, an exercise of maintaining boundaries. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But now if you think about it, people who have not been, people who have been locked up and not talking. So if we were to do a continuum, they're on one end, they're not talking, then, uh, you know, they're locked up and it gets lonely over there. And so what they do is they swing way over to the other side and they talk and they share everything. 
and they miss all the flags that might say this person is not somebody you want to share at this level with. And then, then when that person indeed proves themselves unworthy of that kind of uh, trust, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then they run back to the other side and say, I knew I couldn't talk. I knew it wasn't safe. And they stay over there again until they get really lonely and uh, becomes unbearable. And they do the same thing rather than taking this process and you know, watching for the red flags. And then this is all I can tell you because this is all you've demonstrated that you can handle. And that's just, and I ain't mad at you. That's all you can handle. I just can't tell you anything else of, of significance right. because that's all you can handle. Yeah. But we do this wild swing back and forth as opposed to this process of really discerning where people are. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. That is huge. Especially when you're dealing with codependency and, you know, oftentimes we think of codependency as it relates to, you know, growing up in an alcoholic or addictive home, but codependency is so much broader and there's so many people that have some of the, the, the traits or the behaviors mm -hmm. that don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you see mm -hmm. that in your practice. Oh my yeah. All the time. That's a whole nother episode. That's a whole, yes. <laughs> that's a whole nother episode. I have to bring it back. Yeah, because um, yeah, we, we definitely need to do a deep dive on that. Um, yes. But if you could look, looking back in retrospect, if you could go back and talk to your 18 year old self, mm -hmm. what would you say to your 18 year old self about life, love and relationships and faith? I, I think for sure what I would say is be gentle with yourself. Just, just be gentle with yourself. And things are going to work out. Things are not as they appear. When I, when I think where I was at 18, oh my word, you know, just, just trying to make it, just trying to make sense of my life and uh, how I was going to, what was my place in life? How was I gonna find that place in life? I would say just to be gentle on yourself and to be patient. I have a tendency to be impatient. I'm for sure at 18, I know I was. I, um, I would say be gentle and be patient. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. What, what would you say are your, cause I know you do a lot of, coaching clients to um, use good coping strategies. What would you say are your go-to coping strategies? Great question. I'm, I'm really big on journaling. Even if it's a line, it doesn't, uh, I think people get intimidated because they think they have to write a book. Right. Um, I, I'm, I'm real big on just saying it doesn't have to be a book. It could be just you know, help me or, you know, just a couple words down. And then there are days when you have more to say and you have more time to say it. Sometimes it takes, it, it takes time. And so you might have to, again, in your journaling, there would be more words. And then there are uh, other times when no words are, you know, just a few words or a song would be appropriate. 
I'm amazed at how long it's taken me to understand and appreciate that I am creative and I'm made in God's image. We are, we are, and God made us and God is creative. And so I have really, I guess in the last 10 years or so, I have given myself permission to uh, really work on that creative side of me. Right now, I am doing calligraphy, and I do bullet journaling, and it's a great system, but also, you know, making it creative. It's not just a plain, oh, I have my calendar of things to do, but I add stickers and calligraphy and and sayings, and, and I really make a point of doing that. Nice. That's really important. I, I like to say that they are internal processors and es- external processors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think out loud. I talk, and in my talking, the ideas come together. And my husband's on the other side. He's quiet. He's introspective, mm-hmm. and he comes in a week or two later and says, "This is what I put together." Whereas I am putting it together as I'm talking. And so I've learned to appreciate that. And so I have a community of sisters who we, we talk regularly. And I may call uh, my friend Andrea and just say, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think? And, you know, this is where I am. My other friend, Joanne, I might say this. Uh, and by the way, they were very helpful yesterday in helping to pull me from my shame, that shame cycle. And so uh, knowing, having a community, I think is really important. And they just, they just become a reality check for me. And so I know that the narrative in my head is not, it needs to be challenged. Just to tell you a funny story real quickly. So since we've been on lockdown, my husband and I, you know, all summer, we, we still walk five or six miles a day. And so I've lost weight in the pandemic. And so I probably have lost seven or eight pounds. And so I remember when it first happened and I was so excited, uh, you know, I got on the scale. I was like, wow you know, this is great. And so I got in the shower and I was thinking, oh, oh, I forgot to check. And I'm thinking, uh, when I get out, I'm going to check. And I know I'm going to have a 36, 24, 36 (laughs) body, right? And so I get out the shower and I look at myself in the mirror and I still am just a smaller version of my same shape. Right. And I started laughing to myself. That narrative in my head was like, <laughs> oh, my word. And I almost had a nerve to be disappointed. It's like, <laughs> oh, man, you know what? You lost seven pounds and you still look the same. No, I've lost seven pounds. I'm just a smaller version. And when I told Andrea and Joanne that they just laughed, those narratives have to be challenged all the time and so part of my coping is to have somebody you know this is a narrative in my head right what do you think you know does that sound right yeah i I want thanksgiving to be norman rockwell 
my kids are like, uh, we're watching a football game and if we eat at four, I'm fine, you know, we're good. No, I want everybody at the table dressed up and we're going to say our blessing and we're going to thank God for everything and we're just going to have, we're going to sing songs and they're like looking at me like, you are out your mind. Right, right. <laughs> I would be so disappointed until I realized that the narrative in my head is right. not what I got. right. <laughs> Right, right, right. Yeah, it's so funny that we can go. There. We all can go there at some yeah. or another. Yeah, that's that's cool. That's cool to when you have a tribe that will yeah. keep you keep you grounded. Yes, grounded. So we're at the rapid fire. I'm gonna ask you a few questions. So, what would you say is your favorite destination in the world? Oh, I love Czechoslovakia. Mm, I love Prague. That's a that's a good, yeah, that's a good. I love Prague. Yeah, what do you love about Prague? It's so, it's so beautiful, ornate, and it's just, uh, and I don't like old things ordinarily. I, I didn't, I, I don't enjoy London, but when we went to Prague, it was just so beautiful and just so historic. And we drove and we drove from uh, Germany to Prague. It was, it was a gorgeous ride. But when we got to Prague, it was just so beautiful. Mm. And I want to go back. Saying something. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, cool. So if you could choose a sunset or a sunrise um, and what each represents, what would you choose? I would choose sunrise for sure. I am a day person. Uh, I can wake up at five, quarter to five, singing, and the freshness of the day and the quietness of the day, I just absolutely love. There's just something so peaceful and so just so magnificent about early morning. And the flip side of that at night, at seven, uh, I don't make any decisions after seven. I'm not a night person. So, you know, their sun, sunsets are beautiful, but nothing like the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what's your favorite meal? Mexican. Okay, so, Mex- so what on, what uh, on the, uh, uh, the Mexican? Any, yeah. Anything Mexican. It could be, um, I love the, the beans, rice, and avocado, sour cream combination. And, you know, I could make, I could do that in enchilada. I could do that. I'm not a fried food person. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not a big bread person. So then I can have a couple of chips, but the bean, rice, avocado, and salsa and uh, sour cream combination is like... Uh, That's your jam. That's oh, your- my word. Yes. Okay. If you could break bread with three influential people, past or present, who would you choose? Okay, that's a really good question. I probably would choose, you know, um, I'm sure everybody says Jesus, right? Um, no. But, oh, they don't. Okay. okay. Well, I, you know, for sure, I, uh, I, I, I'm always fascinated with how everyday common Jesus is when I sit and just really take him off the pedestal and know that he is just so regular. Yeah. Uh, just, and sometimes I get mad because he's so regular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, you know, yeah. do something, 
don't be so regular. Yeah. <laughs> but he is regular, and I and I appreciate that in the long run. Um, yeah, I guess kind of like us, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Extraordinary uh, people, but grounded in the ordinary. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And I, I, I think I would have, I would have wanted to understand the the changes that Martin Luther went through to arrive at the place where he had the courage to nail those 95 theses to the wall, uh, to the church door. Mm. Uh, just so the you, courage. So Martin Luther, because usually people will pull out Martin Luther King. Yeah. So Martin Luther. Yeah. Yeah. Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, you know, MLK was cut from that same yolk. Uh, but, you know, just being able to do that. And what is that theologian's name? Howard. Mm. I, I want let me throw a lady in the mix here. Let me throw a lady in the mix. I, I would want to, uh, I would want to understand Lot's daughters. Oh, okay. That's different too. Wow. What would you want to understand about them? Well, I'm in, in fact, I'm writing a book about them and, uh, and Hagar mm-hmm. and uh, Rispa mm. and what they have in common. And uh, Lot's daughters have taken a bad rap. But when you look at the story, when you sit with the story, when you look at the context and you look at all the angles, they were trying to help God out. Mm. They thought that they, the story is that they wanted to preserve seed for their father. They were trying to preserve his lineage. And so they were trying to do something good, but they were trying to help God out because they didn't think that God could do that. And so they, they were trying to help him out. And I think, I would be surprised at how much I'm like them. Hmm. Uh, well, I know, I mean, I'm surprised even as I'm writing and sitting with them. I've been sitting with them for a couple, well, longer than a couple of years, but been writing a couple of years with them, about them. Yeah. And I'm a lot like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look forward to reading that book when it comes yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it's going to be real interesting. It's, it's amazing how as women, we have more in common than not. Yeah. 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 And then last question, if you could create a billboard for millions of people to see, what would your message be? Long answer, short. I'm going to try to say it short. Between uh, one and two, three and four, the whole numbers is infinity, Right. So it's like 1.33, and but when you do 1.3, it goes on at infinitum. And how you get to 1.4, or 1.5, 1.5, I, I don't know, but you do. You go to 1.7, 1.7, and then you get to 2. And so when I look at you, I'm seeing you at 1.3, and uh, you have infinite, infinity in you. You have a piece of infinity in you because mm-hmm. you are made in God's image. And I would want you to grab a hold of that. And so I get a snapshot today, but that's not the end of the story. If I come back and study you again in a couple of weeks, you would be different. 
and mm. you might be a 1.4, but there's a different, there's an infinity between one and two, between two and three, you know, and I would wow. want you to know Powerful. that. Powerful. Thank you so much. Wow. You have dropped some gems today. Just so, so much insight, so much insight that we can glean from your, your testimony, your ministry, as well as your books. So I look forward to further conversations with you. So where, where can folks uh, reach out to you or connect with you, Beverly? Oh, good question. We have a website, www.intohisrest.org. And that's I-N-T-O-H-I-S-R-E-S-T dot org. And uh, you can get our book and workbook from the website as well as some other resources. We have some presentations that we've done. One, a couple of our favorites are sexuality and forgiveness, and they're on the Mm -hmm. website. And, um, you know, people are welcome to glean and watch those videos. Of course, you can get the book and the workbook on Amazon, but we would love it if you get it from the website. And you can certainly call us at uh, 269-697-0145. Thank you so much, (laughs) so much. I, I can't tell you enough how much this has uh, been so insightful and helpful. And we look forward to things in the future for you and your husband as you continue on to impart just such uh, powerful messages to people. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. I feel like I'm talking to an old friend. Thanks so much. We are, we are, we are. Yeah. had such a enlightening, enjoyable conversation with Beverly today. Have you ever met people and you're like, I think I have met you or I've had a long conversation with you before because it just feels like your family. And so that was my experience with her today. I'm so thankful that she took time out of her schedule to share her heart, share her journey, and to be transparent. So many gems and insights that she um, shared as it relates to healing and recovery. And remember, if you want to connect with her, I will leave her information in the show notes. Also, her and her husband have written this phenomenal piece of work, Cleansing the Sanctuary of the Heart. And I will leave information in the show notes on how to purchase their book. Again, I can't say enough about this book. It does a phenomenal job talking about the neurobiology and neuroscience, as well as integrating it with biblical teachings to help you on your journey to healing. So, and if you have ideas or suggestions, or you want to be a guest on the podcast, because you've got a phenomenal story of overcoming, please connect with me at interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's interiormotivespodcast at gmail.com. And remember to wear blue this month. Why? Because it's Autism Awareness Month. And I just want to hold space 
for the brothers and sisters that, you know, are on this journey. And I, I thank you listeners for continuing to stay tuned and to support the podcast and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. I want to continue to give you great content and things you're interested in and to share stories that really resonate with you. So until next time, remember to love on yourselves and love on your family members and be well and be blessed. Thank you.